Welcome back, Hemingway Brainiacs, to Button Brooks by Thomas Mann, Chapter 7. This was a whoosh chapter for me. I'm thinking of switching translations. That was my discussion prompt because the chapter just didn't sink in. I know it was something about someone getting indigestion and the doctor prescribing certain foods, but I just found it difficult to uh, let the. I'm finding it difficult for this book to soak in, you know? I feel like I really have to pay attention. And even though I'm reading it out loud, it's just not quite landing. And might be the translation. Anne de Bruyne says, I have to admit I also find it difficult to add something for discussions. Foremost because English is not my native, native language and I'm reading the book in German so I can't post the exact quotes which are interesting to me, but also because the chapters are so short and on the nose, so there is not much room for interpretation. I found this to be different with War and Peace, maybe because the customs of German merchants mid-19th century are more familiar to me than those of Russian aristocracy 30 years before. In this chapter, Christian suffers from overeating and swears he will never eat again. He seems to have a tendency for exaggeration, which fits with what we have seen of his character so far. Swim says, Swim says the mother fishy, says, I wish you would post your German quotes. I would then copy them into my translation app, which should give me enough info to find English translation passages. I know it sounds like a lot of work, but I I know, I now feel like I'm missing out on not knowing what you found interesting. (laughs) Awesome. I like this little system. Um, Yeah. And to anyone, if you find a particular passage interesting, do go ahead. And, uh, and post it. Hadja Moron says, I get the idea of using bread to help with indigestions, but was baffled by the suggestion of pigeon. Apparently it was a very common ingredient in the medical practice in the 18th century, which probably suggests the doctor is a bit old-fashioned, despite his youth. Pigeon in early medicine. Okay. A couple of people said they like the idea of this cook-along. Um... Which, yep, cool, let's do it. Um, <clears throat> Ubiquitin says, The most compelling thing in this chapter for me was the thought of eating four times a day. That sounds like the life, especially with someone else doing the cleaning. I think I eat more than four times a day, just personally. Okay, so I guess <clears throat> maybe the only underlying thing is just hinting at decadence. The thing that's make the only sickness he suffers from is his sickness from overeating, from overindulgence. That's his, that's his, uh, his sickness. Could be something like that. What do you reckon? Um, I reckon we should now read chapter eight. Just gotta load up the uh, the viewer here. Um. Okay. Chapter eight. Sorry for the dead air. I'm just flicking through the book. Okay, that's five. That's seven. Oh, I found it. All right, apologies for that. Thanks for your patience. Chapter eight. They were rising from the table. Well, ladies and gentlemen, 
Jesgent and Mazheat. Cigars and coffee in the next room and a liquor if Madame feels generous. Billiards for whomever chooses. Jean, you will show them the way back to the billiard room. Madame Coppin, may I have the honour? Full of well-being, laughing and chattering, the company trooped back through the folding doors into the landscape room. The console remained behind and collected about him the gentleman who wanted to play billiards. You won't try a game, father. No, Liebrich Kroger would stop with the ladies, but justice might go if he liked. Senator Langholz, Coppen, Gretchens, and Dr. Grabal went with the consul, and Jean-Jacques Hofstede said he would join them later. Johann Buddenbrook is going to play the flute, he said. I must stop for that. Au revoir, messieurs. As the gentlemen passed through the hall, they could hear from the landscape room the first notes of the flute accompanied by the Frau Consul on the harmonium, an airy, charming little melody that floated sweetly through the lofty rooms. The Consul listened as long as he could. He would have liked to stop behind in an easy chair in the landscape room and indulge the reveries that the music conjured up, but his, but his duties as host... Bring some coffee and cigars into the billiards room, he said to the maid whom he met in the entry. Yes, Lion, coffee, her coppin echoed in a rich, well-fed voice, trying to pinch the girl's red arm. The sea came from far back in his throat as if he were already swallowing the coffee. I'm sure Madame Coppin saw you through the glass, Consul Kroger remarked. So you live up there, Buttonbrook? asked Senator Langholz. To the right, a broad white staircase with a carved baluster led up to the sleeping chambers of the consul's family in the second story. To the left came another row of rooms. The party descended the stairs, smoking, and the consul halted at the landing. The entresol has three rooms, he explained. The breakfast room, my parents' sleeping chamber, and a third room, which is seldom used. A corridor runs along all three. This way, please. The wagons drive through the entry. They can go all the way out to Baker's Alley at the back. The broad echoing passageway below was paved with great square flagstones. At either end of it were several offices. The odour of the onion sauce still floated out from the kitchen, which with the entrance to the cellars lay on the left of the steps. On the right at the height of the story above the passageway, a scaffolding of ungainly but neatly varnished rafters thrust out from the wall, supporting the servants' quarters above a sort of ladder which led up to them from the passage was their only means of ingress or egress. Below the scaffolding were some enormous old cupboards and a carved chest. Two low, worn steps led through a glass door out to the courtyard and the small wash house. From here you could look into the pretty little garden, which was well laid out, though just now brown and sodden with the autumn rains, its beds protected with straw mats against the cold. At the other end of the garden rose the portal, the Rococo façade of the summer house. From the courtyard, however, the party took the path to the left, leading between two walls through another courtyard to the annex. They entered by slippery steps into a cellar-like vault with an earthen floor which was used as a granny and, sorry, a granary and provided with a rope for hauling up the sacks. A pair of stairs led up to the first story, where the consul opened a white door and admitted his guests to the billiard room. It was a bare, severe-looking room, with stiff chairs ranged round the sides. Herr Coppen flung himself exhausted into one of them. "'I'll look on for a while,' said he, brushing the wet from his coat. "'It's the devil of a Sabbath day's journey through your house, Buttonbrook.' 
Here too the stove was burning merrily behind a brass lattice. Through the three high narrow windows one looked out over red roofs gleaming with the wet grey gables in courtyards. The console took the cues out of the rack. Shall we play a carambolage, Senator? he asked. He went around and closed the pockets on both tables. He was playing with us. Gretchen's, the doctor, all right. Then will you take the other table, Gretchen's and just us? Coppin, you will have have to play. The wine merchant stood up and listened, with his mouth full of smoke. A violent gust of wind whistled between the houses, lashed the window panes with rain and howled down the chimney. Good Lord, he said, blowing out the smoke. Do you think the woolen wooer will get into port, Buttonbrook? What abominable weather. Yes, and the news from Travelmund was not of the best. Consul Kroger agreed, chalking his cue. Storms everywhere on the coast, nearly as bad as in 1824, the year of the Great Flood in St. Petersburg. Well, here was the coffee. They poured it out and drank a little and began their game. The talk turned upon the customs union and Consul Buttonbrook waxed enthusiastic. An inspiration, gentlemen, he said. He finished a shot and turned to the other table where the topic had begun. We ought to join at the earliest opportunity. Herr Coppen disagreed. He fairly snorted in opposition. How about our independence, he asked, incensed, supporting himself belligerently on his cue. How about our self-determination? Would Hamburg consent to be a party to the Prussian scheme? We might as well be annexed at once. Heaven save us. What do you, what do we want of a customs union? Aren't we well enough as we are? Oops. Yes, you and your red wine, Coppin, and the Russian products are all right, but there is little or nothing else imported. As for exports, well... We send a little corn to Holland and England, it is true, but I think we are far from being well enough as we are. In days gone by, a very different business went on. Now with the Customs Union, the Mecklenburgs, the the Schleswig-Holstein would be opened up, and private business would increase beyond all reckoning. But look here, Buttonbrook, Gretchen's broke in, leaning far over the table and shifting his cue in his bony hand as he took careful aim. I don't get the idea. Certainly our own system is perfectly simple and practical, clearing on the security of a con- of a civic oath. A fine old institution, the consul admitted. Do you call it fine, her consul? Senator Langholz spoke with some heat. I am not a merchant, but to speak frankly, well, I think this civic oath business has become little short of a farce. Everybody makes light of it, and the state pockets the loss. One hears things that are simply scandalous. I am convinced that our entry into the customs union, union, so far as the Senate is concerned. Herr Coppen flung down his cue. Then there will be a conflict, he said heatedly, forgetting to be careful with his pronunciation. I know what I'm saying. God help you, but you don't know what you're talking about, begging your pardon. Well, thank goodness, thought the rest of the company, as Jean Jacques entered at this point. He and Pastor Wunderlich came together arm in arm, two cheerful, unaffected old men from another and less troubled age. Here, my friends, he began, I have something for you, a little rhymed epigram from the French. He sat down comfortably opposite the billiards players who leaned upon their cues across the table. 
drawing a paper from his pocket and laying his long finger with the signet ring to the side of his pointed nose, he read aloud with a mock heroic intonation. When the Marchal Saxe and the proud Pompadour were dri- driving out gaily in gilt coach and four, Frelon spied the pair. Oh, see them, he cried, the sword of our king and his sheath side by side. Her coppin looked disconcerted for a minute, then he dropped the conflict where it was and joined in the hearty laughter that echoed to the ceiling of the billiard room. Pastor Wunderlich withdrew to the window, but the movement of his shoulders betrayed that he was chuckling to himself. Her Hofstede had more ammunition of the same sort in his pocket, and the gentleman remained for some time in the billiard room. Her coppin unbuttoned his waistcoat all the way down and felt much more at ease here than in the dining room. He gave vent to droll low German expressions at every turn, and at frequent intervals began reciting to himself with enormous relish when the Merichal sacks. It sounded quite different in his harsh bass. Alrighty, there's another chapter for you. Uh, yet again, not much of that really sunk in for me. Uh, this could be a little bit of a problem. Anyway... Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.